0: So I think what's happening in our world is the vanishing of transcendence, and its effects are somewhat like the depletion of the ozone layer. Nobody notices. Transcendence can evaporate, and one hardly notices it. Social life goes on. Uh, things proceed. It does It's like the remember the neutron bomb that was supposed to destroy everything but buildings. Uh, there's something like that in the evaporation of transcendence uh, the, the the ozone layer is gone nobody notices it everybody begins to get skin cancer some kind of malignancy sets in that's that is depending on one's susceptibility and where one is in the uh, you know in the environment one is exposed to more or less of the harmful effects but it's it's really well, completely widespread and, at first, unnoticeable. And I think that's a reasonably good metaphor for the evaporation of the experience of transcendence in our world. The lack of transcendence will not keep us from being religious. It will just make us into idol worshippers. And this novel shows that perfectly clearly. When the boys in this novel are sitting in the chapel for the first session by the headmaster at their boarding school, and the headmaster gets up and begins to read the Bible. Neville looks up at him and says, The brute menaces my liberty when he prays. I jibe and mock at this sad religion of his. And the next sentence, he says, Now I will lean sideways as if to scratch my thigh, so I shall see Percival. There he sits, upright among the smaller fry. His blue and oddly inexpressive eyes are fixed with pagan indifference upon the pillar opposite. And Percival is this magnificent character whom everybody in this novel idolizes. So the idolatry is instant. It begins the second that any sense of transcendence is rejected. And Jeremiah predicted it. I'm going over things we've talked about in the weeks before, but I'm trying to bring it all sort of online as we start today. Jeremiah predicted all this uh, centuries and centuries ago when he said, It is long ago now since you broke your yoke, burst your bonds, and said, I will not serve. Yet on every high hill and under every spreading tree you have lain down like a harlot. So it is in that sense that this book is a prayer book. A prayer book of people who are who are experiencing their religious impulses in a world without transcendence and sowing all of these impulses into the sociodrama and creating a kind of house of mirrors at first and ultimately a madhouse. So I've been talking about it in terms of prayer. One could talk about it also in terms of faith. Tillich, as I quoted Tillich earlier, Tillich talks about it in terms of faith. Tillich says, Without faith, there is no personality. I think that's really one of the most profound insights. Without faith, there's no personality. But he said, obviously, one can have idolatrous faith. And idolatrous faith produces a kind of semblance of personality, but it's a destabilized personality and eventually a disintegrated personality because it lacks, the way to understand that, is it? it lacks transcendence. Only faith in something truly transcendent can give rise to a personality that has some kind of social stability. But even idolatrous faith, as Tillich points out, has its mimetic consequences. All faith has its mimetic consequences. As John of the Cross said, Quote, love creates a likeness between that which loves and that which is loved. All faith has mimetic consequences. Idolatrous faith has mimetic consequences as well. If the object of our faith is somebody in our social environment, that has mimetic consequences as well. We will begin to mimic one another, imitate one another, envy one another, rival with one another, and the whole the whole social problem uh, arises. Parenthetically, by the way, uh, John the Cross says love creates a likeness between that which loves and that which is loved. uh, Really, it is desire that creates this likeness, and desire can be negative. Hate is a form of desire. Desire not in a Freudian sense, but in an anthropological sense, in a Gerardian sense. Uh, hate is the one of the most powerful of all desires. Uh, it's the supreme delusion of desire. So that when one... The hate, hate finally ripens into the desire to kill the hated one, the desire to annihilate the hated one, a desire which can override all of the loves of one's life. People uh, all, all over this planet right now, people are throwing their own happiness, their own happiness of their families, their children, their communities into the vortex of conflagration in order to satisfy this desire, which is the desire of hate. But at the same time, hate creates likeness. All desire creates likeness. Hate creates likeness. Two opponents who hate each other inevitably inevitably become indistinguishable, morally indistinguishable. So our desires or our faith has mimetic consequence, whether it's positive or negative, whether it's transcendent or, or deviated, you see whether we're sowing our desires in the social order exclusively or we have a transcendent uh, relationship uh, and so on. They're all all of these things have mimetic consequences. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's taught he's reporting to us on the results of his life of faith. He's showing that a life of faith has mimetic consequences. And when the characters in this novel say, I can't tell when where I can't tell whether I'm really me or whether I'm Jenny and, and Rhoda. It's reporting on the same thing. So looking back on this on his life, Bernard says, What I call my life is not one life. I am not one person. I am many people. I do not altogether know who I am. I am Jenny, Susan, Neville, Rhoda, Lewis. Nor do I know how to distinguish my life from there. Now, I just ask you to compare that with Paul. Paul said, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. They're absolutely the same thing, precisely the same thing. We can't understand Paul's saying, or we we found it perplexing. And here we have in this novel the exact equivalent in a world without transcendence. Bernard says, what I call my life is not one life, I do not altogether know who I am, Jenny, Susan, Neville, Rhoda, or Lewis, or how to distinguish my life from theirs. Couldn't be more perfectly parallel to Paul's experience. The only difference is the object of one's devotion and faith. It's religious. That's why I say this novel is a religious novel. It goes even further. And that is, towards the end of the novel, Bernard says, "Here on my brow is the blow I got when Percival fell. Here on the nape of my neck is the kiss Jenny gave Lewis. My eyes fill with Susan's tears. That's the stigmata. That's, the, that's the, the, a version of the stigmata, you see? one suddenly begins to have bodily sensations corresponding to the other that one is mimetically entangled with. So, what I want to try to show is that all of these things are coming about, not just in this novel, but in our world, because of a lack of transcendence. Part of the reason we're experiencing a lack of transcendence is because the old way of generating sacrificial transcendence has been compromised by the biblical revelation, particularly the gospel revelation. We used to have a transcendence in our world, a sense of transcendence in our world, that was at least to some significant extent generated out of periodic sacrificial episodes. We revived our sense of who we were and so on sacrificially and we're less and less able to do so. This is no time to get into that because we want to stay with Virginia Woolf, but I, as a footnote I would say let's remember part of the reason we're lacking transcendence is because the old way of creating it has been has been compromised by the gospel. And then the only question is is will we find a, no, a a new non-sacrificial way to experience transcendence? And I think that's what faith is. It's not just a question that we've become backsliders in our time. The mechanism for generating the old-fashioned kind of transcendence has been broken down by the biblical revelation. And Nietzsche got it wrong in many ways, but he got it right in many ways as well, so that when his madman runs around and announces that God is dead, he says something nobody can understand. In in the... So, for example, what he's saying, if we translate it into the terminology we've been using here, he's saying, look, the experience of transcendence is vanishing. We're living in a world without transcendence. Well, he doesn't put it that way. He puts it that God is dead. And here's what he says. First of all, he says it, and uh, people don't understand what he's talking about. Uh, It's like the ozone layer. He's all worked up about this. He seems to think it's a big deal. Nobody else cares. You see, God is dead. What does that mean? I mean, there are things to do, there's, and so on. It doesn't seem to be relevant. And he says, What did we do when we loosened this earth from its sun? Whither does it now move? Whither do we move? Away from all suns? Do we not dash on unceasingly now? backwards, forwards, sideways, in all directions, is there still an above and below? In other words, this backward, forward, un- unceasingly dashing around in all directions, one could interpret that, I think, appropriately in terms of being, the, the as Jung says in one place, the shuttlecock of every wind that blows. Uh, the, to responding incessantly to whatever mimetic stimuli comes our way suddenly the the hinge has come off and we're we're going in all directions with more and more speed more and more frantically and then the madman says i come too early i am not yet at the right time this prodigious event is still on its way and clearly nietzsche has seen something he has interpreted it nihilistically, somewhat gleefully, in a sort of pagan way, and all the rest of it. But he has seen something. And when Augustine centuries earlier said we are made for God and we cannot we, we will not rest until we rest in God, he is he's talking about the opposite of what Nietzsche's madman is talking about. It's the opposite of dashing around unceasingly in all directions. So this is this is the the world that this novel is trying to diagnose, and as you know, earlier we looked at Dostoevsky's *Notes from Underground* as, and it's really a parallel novel to this one, I think. And Dostoevsky's *Underground Man* sees pretty much what Nietzsche's Madman saw, and he announces, and Nietzsche's Madman says, "Well, you don't see it, but it's still on its way." Dostoevsky's *Underground Man* says something comfortable at the end of the novel. He says, and you know he's crazy. He's, a, he's he's he could easily be written off as a as a as a as a madman himself, as a nihilistic sociopath. And he says at the end of the novel, "I have only, after all, in my life carried to an extreme what you have not dared carry halfway, and what's more." you have taken your cowardice for good sense and have found comfort in deceiving yourself. In other words, he says, what, what, what I am, Dostoevsky is saying, what this character is, is what the world is coming to under the present arrangement of things. And Virginia Woolf says almost exactly the same thing in, a me- in the metaphorical uh, prelude to the last section of her novel. Beneath the deceptive facade of sensuality and lyricism, this little prelude is thoroughly apocalyptic in tone, but it evokes an apocalypse that ends, as Eliot said, not with a bang but a whimper. Here's how it goes. She says, The sun sank. The sky and sea were indistinguishable. Now remember that the, the novel started when the sky and sea were indistinguishable. and then the sun came up and you could see the waves a little bit, and then the sun got higher and you could see the troughs, and you could see the waves chasing each other and so on. And now the sun and then the sun began to slant, and finally at the end the sun goes down, and the sky and the sea become indistinguishable again. So what's becoming? Indistingu- what became distinguishable at the beginning of the novel, slowly but surely, were the characters in this novel. They were able to differentiate themselves from one another. But in the course of their lives, they, they, they were able to sort of pull themselves up and, and hold on to their differentiation for a while. And then suddenly, it all started to fall apart again. And at the end of the novel, they're undifferentiated again, just as, just as these quotations I, I, I said. I'm going to cite some more here in a minute. Where suddenly, they can't tell themselves from each other. They don't know where each ends and the other begins. So she says, the sky and the sea are in the she says as if there were waves of darkness in the air darkness moved on covering houses hills trees as waves of water wash around the sides of some sunken ship darkness washed down streets now this is this is the this is her way of talking about what I was trying to talk about when I talked about the hole in the ozone layer, something is happening in our world. And the, Nietzsche's madman says it's still on its way. And Virginia Woolf says, here's what's happening. We don't notice it, but it's, 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 it's devouring our world. <coughs> Darkness washed down streets, eddying around single figures, engulfing them. Blotting out couples clasped under the showery darkness of elm trees in full summer foliage. Darkness rolled its waves long, along grassy rides and over the wrinkled skin of the turf, enveloping the solitary thorn tree and the empty snail shells at its foot. Empty snail shells is another metaphor for the, for the self in this novel. Mounting higher, darkness blew around the bare upland slopes and met the fretted and abraded pinnacles of the mountain where the snow lodges forever on the hard rock, even when the valleys are full of running streams and yellow vine leaves. And girls, sitting on verandas, look up at the snow, shading their faces with their fans, them too, darkness covered. That last image is quite extraordinary. At the very moment that the sun is so bright, that they have to shade their faces with their fans, you see, un- completely unaware that darkness is on the move. You see, now, them too, darkness covered. What's well, very apocalyptic. It's very it's because it's done in such such a naturalistic style. We may not immediately see that, but we but it's certainly there. And that's what Virginia Woolf. That's the world Virginia Woolf is is trying to uh, uh, understand by, in this novel. Bernard, who is the voice of Virginia Woolf in the novel, says at one place, on the outskirts of every agony sits some observant fellow who points. And I think that's what Virginia Woolf is trying to do. She doesn't remain on the outskirts of that agony, uh, However... So, I would say, as bizarre as this novel is, it doesn't seem as bizarre as Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. But, in fact, it may be describing the lives of people who have a more advanced case of the disease than even the underground man. And I want to try to take a minute just to point out why that is so. Dostoevsky had, as in the background of his great writing, a kind of Christian anthropology, which I would say would be something like this. Uh, and this is the biblical, I'm using the biblical idiom to think about these things, which would, would have been, some version of this would have been the way Dostoevsky would have thought about it. Uh, we're fallen, first of all. We are uh, sons and daughters of Adam or of Adam and Eve by you know you I don't want I don't want this to be literal biological of course but we are sons and daughters daughters of Adam by nature and we are sisters and brothers of the new Adam or Christ by adoption and that's our condition and there you have the whole problem. The, the problem of the fall, which is the problem of the whole memetics problem, is in us. It's in, it's in our genes, so to speak, at least metaphorically here. But we have been adopted. The New Testament speaks of us as adopted brothers and sisters of Christ. And so we're in this in-between place. And so we're not the old anthropos, though it's still in us. And we're not the new Anthropos, though we've we've had a glimpse of it. And so we live in that world in between. And so the underground man talks about the natural man. And he says, well, the natural man is distinguished by this. He was able to take revenge on those that had offended him with no moral misgiving. That's what makes the natural man. That's the greatness of the natural man. He could take revenge with no moral misgivings. Whereas, of course, we can't. We can't take revenge without moral misgivings. So we're stuck with it. And of course, then the question is, how? Who taught us not to take revenge? The, the, the tradition that told us to forgive and forgive seventy times seventy times and turn the other cheek and all the rest of it. Uh, and vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and, and, and so on. So there, there's a tradition that taught us we can't take revenge. And so the underground man says what we have is resentment. And this, this is where I think Nietzsche got this directly from Dostoevsky and blamed it on Christianity, and he was, he was right in a way. Because we can't take revenge we feel a moral obligation not to take revenge, to some extent at least, and so we feel resentment. Nietzsche says, resentment is a, Christianity causes resentment. It's not true. Christianity simply censures revenge. What causes resentment is all that mimetic entanglement that gives rise to the impulse for revenge. And Christianity asks us to renounce that. So Nietzsche's wrong when he says Christianity creates resentment, but he's right in a way because, to the extent that it, to the extent that we renounce vengeance and still uh, behave in those, in those uh, mimetically entangling ways, we will always be generating resentment. Nevertheless, here's the point I'm trying to make: the underground man says, "I can't take revenge anymore," or we you know, modern people can. But he says, resentment might overcome all my doubts and hesitations and might therefore serve quite successfully as, as an alternative to revenge and become my primary cause. For the natural man, vengeance is his primary cause. He said, I could use resentment that way. That's to say, it would at least focus my, my animosity, and as long as my animosity is focused, I know who I am. But if and and it doesn't have to even stay at the same. Fo- I can be focused on one person this week and somebody else next week. That's okay, as long as it's focused at any given moment, then the personality retains some semblance of coherence. So the underground man is clinging, since he hasn't revenge uh, revenge anymore, hasn't vengeance. He's clinging to resentment because it at least makes life vivid. You see, that's why we like we, we like to. In the sociodrama, we always like to have the other that we know is just this despicable character that we have to overcome no matter what, because it makes life vivid and and defines us, nice in a nice clear way. And the underground man is living for that. But then he so he says this might work as a as a primary cause. But he says, what can I do if I don't even feel resentment? He begins to feel that he may be entering this, you know this terrible, uh, he may be crossing this threshold where he won't even be able to feel resentment. He says, my anger, in consequence of the damned laws of consciousness, is subject to chemical decomposition. So he says, as one looks, the object that one hates vanishes into thin air. The reasons for the hatred evaporate. The offender is nowhere to be found. The affront ceases to be an offense and become something like a toothache for which no one is to blame. And then what? And then he says, I must just bang my head against the wall. I won't even have resentment. In this novel by Virginia Woolf, every once in a while, Bernard bangs his spoon on the table. And to me, it's a little pathetic echo of the underground man's little speech here about banging his head on the wall every time Bernard bangs his spoon on the table it's a way of saying I, I don't agree with that I'm different from that I'm, I'm me not you all the rest of it sort of defining himself differentiating himself bangs his spoon on the table it's so pathetic in a way but it's his little limp version of, cl- of clinging to some form of, uh, of focused resentment that will allow him to define himself it never works it falls apart instantly. But it's his little gesture of saying, I'm me, not you. If Dostoevsky's underground man is a man who still has a good deal of this resentment and can use it to to uh, to uh, stabilize himself to some degree, the characters in this novel have entered the world where all offenses begin to begin to feel like a toothache. They can't quite find a focus for their vengeance. So Jenny says, our hatred is almost indistinguishable from our love, which means that the characters themselves have begun to understand the mimetic nature of these emotions that they're having. So it's clear that both Dostoevsky and Virginia Woolf believe firmly that the disease they're diagnosing in their respective novels is the modern disease. And that it's progressive. And that even though the characters in their novels are, to us, quite outrageous, nevertheless, the disease that they have is the disease the modern world has. What I want to do now is go towards the end of the novel. I should Maybe I should notice one thing, and that is that at the beginning and the middle of the novel, you get... These monologues, internal monologues or interior monologues with all the characters. But at the beginning and middle of the novel, they each last page and a half, two pages, three pages. It you will know, we'll say, Jenny says, and it will go on for a few pages. Rhoda says, Bernard says, go on for a few pages. About two thirds of the way through the novel, these monologues become shorter and shorter and shorter and finally they become little short paragraphs boom 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 and they begin to blur and then you can't really tell and I think this is clearly what Virginia Woolf intended you you can't tell except by noticing who says it who's really saying it any one of them could be saying it they be they they suddenly become there's a huge echo structure that comes into play and you realize the personalities are all dissolving into one another They still retain their little names, but that's it. Otherwise, they have become part of one another. And then, suddenly, I think Virginia Woolf doesn't know how to end this novel, but I'll talk about that next week. It's not one can't end it. There's only, one can't be conclusive with this novel because the only conclusive way to end this novel is with conversion. And it's out of the question for this novelist. But I want to really focus on that next week. But anyway, she so she contrives to end it this way. She has suddenly all voices cease except Bernard's. And Bernard becomes the old man at the end of the novel, looking back on his life and and and, by extension, the lives of all others, and remembering all the events that have already been talked about in the novel. In other words, he tells the novel again. He tells the story of the novel a second time the novel has to go back and tell its own story again to try to get it this time, see if we can get it this time. And the structure is he's sitting in a restaurant speaking to an unknown figure and reminiscing about the past. And he says to this figure, how to sum up, how to explain to you the meaning of my life, and I think for Virginia Woolf this means the meaning of this novel. And he says this, In order to make you understand, to give you my life, I must tell you a story. And there are so many, so many stories. Stories of childhood, stories of school, love, marriage, death, and so on, and none of them are true. Yet, like children, we tell each other stories, and to decorate them, we make up these ridiculous, flamboyant, beautiful phrases. How tired I am of stories. How tired I am of phrases. Who's saying that? Virginia Woolf is saying that. And I think she's absolutely honest there. How, she, remember last week I talked about a passage in the book where Bernard says, Quote, I have made up thousands of stories. I have filled innumerable notebooks with phrases to be used when I have found the true story, the one story to which all the phrases refer, but I have never yet found that story. That's, I think, absolutely central to understanding uh, this novel and Virginia Woolf and the modern world. The most fashionable philosophical position in our world is, is... Literary or philosophical deconstruction, the central premise of which is that we must rid ourselves of all meta narrative. Now, what's a meta-narrative? A meta-narrative is an interpretive is is a story that is the interpretive key to all other stories, that operates as an interpretive key to all other stories. And the idea, you know, we moderns are are completely enamored of the idea that if we just get rid of whatever remaining structures we perceive to be hampering our freedom. We will then be free, and every time we kick one of these structures over, we become ever ever more slavish. So this is really the last straw, you know, the, the removal of any meta-narrative, uh, even of course, and maybe even especially, of course, the meta-narrative that taught us to be suspicious of meta-narrative. <laughs> and that's the, that's the biblical one, you see, the one that is the, the demythologizing narrative of our time. Is the meta narrative that is the biblical revelation uh, so suspicious? And I would say this: uh, this is pretty clear, I think, that philosophical deconstruction has an agenda. That the, the agenda really is to is to uh, is to is to somehow get rid of the the meta narrative that would uh, call us into question, and remind us of our fallen state, uh, and remind us of our calling. And so, in any event, I would say that Bernard is speaking here in anticipation of a, of a vast philosophical movement, vast but, but uh, fundamentally uh, immaterial, but, it, but vast in the sense of being quite fashionable these days. So he's saying, I do not know the story. She's saying, I do not, do not know the one true story to which all the phrases refer, but once you know that one true story, then you can tell all kinds of stories. And to show that there is an agenda, Bernard, (parentheses Virginia Woolf, already acknowledges that the storytelling that takes place without the meta narrative, without the one true story, is designed to obliterate the one true story. Bernard says, I, who am always distracted, always make up a story and so obliterate the angles of the crucifix. That's amazing. That shows Virginia Woolf was, at least at the intuitive level, was onto some tremendous discovery about herself and her, and her art form. You will see this week and, and next week as well when I go through here, speaking of meta narratives, you will sit. You will say, "Gee, Gill sees all of this sort of these parallels here with this, you know, this novel and the Christian story or the biblical story." I mean, could that be? Is Gil just making that up, or is that? Well, I would say this not because I don't think it's because Virginia Woolf necessarily designed it that way. Although I think we should give her the benefit of the doubt. But I think that all stories, that there is a central story. There is one story. And it is the story told in the New Testament. It's told in all ancient religions. It's the story of crisis, death, and and rebirth. And in all the ancient religions, it's told in 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 a sacrificial way, a mythological way. In the New Testament, it's told in a perfectly revelatory way. And in all the rest of the stories, it's the subtext of, uh, of, of crisis, catharsis, and transformation. It's always there in all the stories. And so in a way, the, the theme is always there, the pattern, the structure is always there, and the, the, the most powerful form of it, which I think is the passion story, will always be more powerful than less powerful forms of it. And I mean, that's, a, that's a, 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 a tautology. But the point, I think it's true that that story will always rise to the surface given enough time and will show that all the other stories are based on it and are, and are to some extent ways of obliterating the angles of the crucifix. So I was thinking the other night in Santa Rosa, I was thinking this thing we used to say in the 60s and 70s in the environmental movement. We would, you know, the, the old cliche of don't mess with Mother Nature or something like that. And I was thinking of don't mess with the paraclete. If you try to tell a story, the purpose of which is to obliterate the angles of the crucifix, watch out. Because its effects will simply be to delineate the angles of the crucifix its long-term effect will simply be overcome by the revelation that it tries to uh, subvert or eclipse. So anyway, Bernard says, there are so many stories, stories of childhood, school, love, marriage, death, and none of them are true, and I'm tired of stories. But he hasn't anything else. So he says, I'm going to tell you a story. Now I'm going to tell the story again. And that's not such a bad approach, you know. Tell it until you get it right, in a way. Go back and tell it again and see what comes out this time. And a little more always comes out. The retelling, a little more comes out. For example, just to give a couple of examples, he says, he goes right back to the nursery where this story began, the fall, remember when when, uh, Susan saw Jenny kissing Lewis. That was the fall. And he goes back and he remembers that. And he said, It was Susan who cried that day when I was in the tool house with Neville, and I felt my indifference melt. Neville did not melt. Therefore, I said, I am myself and not Neville, a wonderful discovery. I just want to call attention to this. It's, it's, the, way we, it's the way we discover who we are in a world without transcendence. We're always not the other. There's another passage in here. Oh, it's when Bernard goes off to college. He says, now that I'm at college, I have to ask the question, who am I? And then he says, am I this? No, I'm that. He's clearly talking about two, two models in his social environment. The, the self always defines itself in a, in a world without transcendence. The self always has to define itself vis-a-vis the other. Always with uh, what Gerard calls negative imitation. Remember when Jenny's looking up at the headmistress? She has this certain dress on. And Jenny says, oh, that's a nice dress, but I want this other kind of dress. (laughs) I'm this other kind of person. I'm not like that. I know who I am. I'm not you. I'm me. Uh, You know, A A is not B. B is not A. And that's how we define ourselves, vis-a-vis. It's an unbelievably slippery way of defining yourself because all the things begin to change. And then you say, well, I I like... You, you like Reebok, I like Nike. You like Coke, I like Pepsi. Where are we going? To, where's this thing going to go? I mean, just goes into madness. This goes into madness. So a little bit later on, for example, they're sitting in the chapel, and Bernard says, there was the doctor up there giving his uh, biblical reading, and he said, "I did not hate him like Neville, nor revere him like Lewis." I took notes as we sat together in chapel, and the doctor went on talking about immortality. Percival sat scratching his thigh. I made notes for stories, and thus became more separate. See, he's looking around saying, well, he hates him, he reveres him. Percival's over there staring blankly at the column and scratching his thigh, and I'm taking notes. I must be different. I'm doing my thing. I'm, doing my, I'm, I'm me, not them. There's the, there it is. And then if suddenly if some, he looks over there and somebody else is taking notes, well, then he's got to be doing something else. He's got to be pulling up his socks because, after all, he's got to be himself. This is the modern craziness. The first time this story was told, remember Neville said, uh, now I will lean sideways as if to scratch my thigh so I shall see Percival. Suddenly, 200 pages later, Bernard looks over and sees Percival scratching his thigh. And now we have to go back 200 pages before and realize that Neville didn't tell us something. And that is that Percival was scratching his thigh. And Neville scratched his thigh saying he was scratching it just to have an excuse to lean over. But really, turns out, Percival was... We had to wait 200 pages to find out the truth. And, you know, Girard talks about negative imitation which is this way of creating the self as, as somebody who likes Reeboks instead of Nikes. And he says, uh, it's the effort to leave, quote, it's the effort to leave the beaten path which forces everyone inevitably into the same ditch. <laughs> 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 and that ditch is modernity. I mean, at the psychological level. It's very... Uh, it, it, it has tremendous consequences out there. I got a... a, a postcard from my friend Judy Dieter one time that said uh, uh, if you want to know who you are, find out who everybody else is and you're what's left over. (laughs) 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 That's the psychological version of what Gertrude Stein said about Oakland. There's no there there. (laughs) It's all in outline form. In other words, I'm not that. That's who I am. And that's what the cre- the characters in this novel. Now, sometimes they're modeling and mimicking, and sometimes they're defining, which is which is positive imitation. Sometimes it's negative imitation, but it's all imitation of other people, more or less, in their either either in their immediate social environment or uh, figures that have been that are, that re- represent mediators for for them. For example, here's Bernard, and this this is a passage that I've quoted over the last year or so because I think it's so, it sums up the problem so well and so humorously, but quite remarkable. Bernard says, I changed and changed. Was Hamlet? Was Shelley? You know, there's a passage, pardon me for interrupting myself, but there's a passage somewhere in in uh, Yates's little book called Visions, I think it is, where he says one of these Yates used to hang around with the, the theosophist, you know, and there was somebody like that. And um, one of these characters said to him that Yates was involved in the theater. And one of these characters said he didn't want to be involved in the theater because he was afraid that if you if you died playing Hamlet, you'd be Hamlet for all eternity. That's that's really quite remarkable. I mean, that there's a real truth to that. There's a real truth to that. That's why when Paul says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me, we ought to take a second look. Anyway, so here's Bernard. I changed and changed, was Hamlet, was Shelley, was the hero whose name I now forget of a novel by Dostoevsky. Now, before going on, Dostoevsky only wrote one novel whose hero didn't have a name, and that was Notes from Underground. So who's he talking about? I think it's pretty clear. I was Hamlet, was Shelley, was a hero whose name I now forget of a novel by Dostoevsky, was for a whole term incredibly Napoleon, but was Byron chiefly. For many weeks at a time, it was my part to stride into rooms, fling gloves and coat on the back of chairs, scowling slightly. I was always going to the bookcase for another sip of the divine specific. He was always getting out Byron's Don Juan, you know, and ah, inhaling a few more fumes in order to, in order to keep going. But the idea of, you know, read the Bible until it takes root in you. All of this is a parody of biblical faith. The only thing that's different is that one of them has true transcendence and one of them hasn't. So, then he goes on, he would go to the bookshelf for the, uh, a sip of the divine specific, and then he would grab the pen and go to town. And he said, Therefore, I let fly my tremendous battery of phrases upon somebody quite inappropriate. A girl now married, now buried. Every book, every window seat was littered with the sheets of my unfinished letters to the woman who made me Byron. For it is difficult to finish a letter in somebody else's style. We're going to have a model. We're going to have a model, or we're going to have several of them, a million of them. Having, having three dozen rather than one keeps you from being caught. See, all, of, all, all of us moderns don't want to be caught modeling. Okay, so there's a, a, there's a meeting at Hampton Court without Percival. The first meeting with Percival, Percival's presence represented the ordering principle. And therefore, the the real psychological cacophony represented by these strange entangled relationships didn't present itself because as soon as Percival came, it all cleared up. Without Percival, the perverse nature of the way in which they have all uh, created their own identity is about to declare itself. And so there is this search in a way, the novel is searching, or you could say the novelistic spirit is searching for something that will center the social arrangement without Percival. And I think it's interesting that the centering is, becomes a willow tree. They all take a walk and they go out and there's this willow tree. And for Bernard, the willow tree becomes important. It represents some kind of centering principle for this meeting. And Bernard says, The willow tree grew by the river. The tree alone resisted our eternal flux. Its shower of falling branches its creased and crooked bark, had the effect of what remains outside our illusions, yet cannot stay them, is changed by the illusions for the moment, yet shows through stable, still, and with a sternness that our lives lack. And so I think the willow tree represents something interesting in this novel. It just appears very briefly. But it represents, for me, two things. One is, Nature. I think it's interesting because at a certain point in our own era, the idea of the return to nature became a very, a very alluring possibility. And I think it became interesting to us for exactly the same reason the willow tree comes into play in this novel. There's a hope that somehow we can find stability outside the sociodrama because the sociodrama has become so unbelievably unstable socially and psychologically. And that in our search for stability, not having a transcendent option or not exercising it, we look to nature itself, hoping that somehow we can return to nature and get our feet on the ground again. And I think, as I say, Rousseau's experience, I think, uh, disproves that. That's not to say we shouldn't try to return to nature, don't get me wrong. But I think in this story, and I think in the modern world, Nature does not represent a substantial alternative, a curing alternative to the sociodrama because it does not represent for us and cannot, in my estimation, represent a truly transcendent alternative. On the other hand, you could say this willow tree is a, is a metaphor for all of the uh, panaceas that, we have, that we've been drawn to uh, Bernard says the willow tree remains outside our illusions, yet cannot stay them. In a way, the willow tree stands there and lets itself become a metaphor for whatever you want to feel or think. It becomes a, a, a kind of uh, uh, tabula rosa for your religious longings. But then along comes somebody like Jenny, and here's what Bernard says about Jenny. The willow tree as she saw it grew on the verge of a great desert where no birds sang. She made the willow tree dance but not with illusion, for she saw nothing that was not there. It was a tree to Jenny. Well, after a while, if somebody's in your presence who for whom it's just a tree, it has a it has a uh, undermining effect on whatever myth other people might have about it. And so Bernard says, Everybody related to the willow tree. But then Lewis, by the way, comes out and spreads down uh, his Macintosh and sits on it. And Lewis is very, he he joins the rest of them around the tree, but you can tell he's a little uncomfortable being there. And finally Lewis gets up and leaves. And then everybody slowly gets up and leaves. And now the tree is being abandoned. It didn't really work. And Bernard says, Lewis got up and went. We all got up. We all went. But I, pausing, looked at the tree, and as I looked, some sediment formed. I formed. A drop fell. I fell. That is, from some completed experience, I had emerged. So there's this little promise here that he's about to throw away this life of... of uh, mimetic desire and comparison and all of that. He says, I emerged. And then the next line is, I rose and walked away. I, 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 not Byron, Shelley, Dostoevsky, but I, Bernard. I even repeated my own name once or twice. You see, this is like a real incredible breakthrough he's about to make. And one wants to know, can he do it? He says, first of all... he looked to the willow tree instead of to some other model, and it didn't really work. Everybody walked away from the willow tree, and so did he. But then you see, he's right on the verge of renouncing, one way of speaking of it is renouncing the life of desire. Always remember, I'm not talking about Freudian desire, but anthropological desire. He's on the verge of renouncing it all, and he says, suddenly I'm not, I wasn't Byron or Shelley or Dostoevsky, I was me, I was Bernard. So he's found himself, this is the great, you know, find yourself. So he's become really a modern now. He's found himself. And so the question is, how long... And with no model, he says. No model. I mean, he doesn't say it, but it's, it's implicit in what he says. No model. So here is Bernard, who's the most mimetic figure in this, car- in this play, I mean, in this novel. He has no model. The question is, how long can he live without a model? Get out your stopwatches. Okay, watch what happens. I rose walked away. I, 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 not Byron Shelley, Dostoevsky, but I, Bernard. I even repeated my own name once or twice. I went swinging my stick. Now, I'll come back to this next week, but swinging the stick in this novel always means a labored attempt to appear nonchalant one swings one's stick as a way of trying to pose carefully, methodically, pose as someone who is not careful or methodical. So he says, I went swinging my stick, meaning fully conscious that all eyes were on me, into a shop and bought, not that I love music, a picture of Beethoven in a silver frame. (laughs) It's just incredible, really. It's quite amazing. So he says... So he bought the picture of Beethoven with a silver frame. Not that I love music, he said. Now that's incredible that Virginia Woolf would would flag this thing the way she does so that we couldn't miss it. Not that I love music. And then he starts the next sentence the same way. Not that I love music, but because the whole of life, its masters, its adventurers, then appeared in long ranks of magnificent human beings behind me. And I was the inheritor, I the continuer, I the person miraculously appointed to carry it on. What is happening, really? What is happening in, in history? He wants to be in the procession of something important happening in history. And he looks back, and what does he see? Long ranks of magnificent human beings, magnificent personalities. This is the personality theory of history what does history represent? The long ranks of magnificent human beings. This is such a typical modern position. I want to analyze it. And I want to start with an article that was in the Harvard Divinity Bulletin by Helmut Kester, who's at the Harvard Divinity School, an article about analyzing the quest for the historical Jesus. And the quest for the historical Jesus is an is a, a important modern undertaking in part driven by the West demythologizing impulse. And in that regard, it's very healthy. We in the West are determined to get past the myth to the truth. And I think that's what makes uh, Western... uh, That's at the heart of Western epistemology, if you will, the determination to get past the myth to the truth. So that's at the heart... That's one element in this quest for the historical Jesus. But another element, less beneficial... I think, is the preoccupation with personality. And Kester picks up on that in a very interesting way. He says, quote, We have to ask ourselves whether our search for the historical Jesus is not actually predetermined by the conditions of the cultural paradigm that dominates the second half of our century in the Western world. As long as our search is directed to the rediscovery of the historical Jesus, it will be difficult to escape that paradigm, for it is in fact the very cause of the quest. Certain factors, furthermore, that dominate the consciousness of the Western world, will continue to prejudice the results. The most evident of these factors is an aversion for eschatology. Eschatology is the sense that there is something beyond all this, that history is heading someplace, it's going to end someplace, it has a destination. You see, a long line of magnificent personalities doesn't. It's not a. It's not a story with a beginning and an ending. Kester says, very interestingly, that Paul had access to all the stories that were circulating about Jesus, not only stories about his life, but these collections of sayings that were circulated in the early church. Paul obviously had access to them. He never mentions any of them. All he talks about is the crucified Christ, the risen Christ. He's uninterested, if you consult his letters, he's uninterested in the historical Jesus. As a matter of fact, when the Corinthian community becomes uh, interested in these sayings, he he chastises them. Uh, Kester says, As soon as these sayings of Jesus were understood as the saving message of a great wisdom teacher, Paul warned them that they were destroying the very essence of the proclamation of Jesus' crucifixion as the turning point of the ages. Jesus had brought about this eschatological event. He did not do it through anything that he had said or done, but through the very fact of his death on the cross. In other words, Paul was saying, it's perfectly okay to be interested in the historical Jesus, but if you put that at the center of it and you resurrect this wisdom teacher who said and did these, did these marvelous things and said these wise things, you miss the point. The point is what's going on in history. And why? And you can't get to that through the wisdom sayings and through the historical life of Jesus. You can only get to that through the cross. And so if that somehow is eclipsed or is moved off-center in this quest for the historical Jesus, then we have thrown the the real core of the tradition out and the real power of the the interpretive key for understanding what's going on in the world we have eliminated in our effort to understand the personality of the person who died on the cross. And I think that's quite extraordinary. Now, why am I reading that? Because it's of a piece with Bernard deciding that this procession that he's dying to be in is a procession constituted by the long ranks of magnificent human beings.
1: Hello, my name is Randy Coleman-Reese, Executive Director of the Cornerstone Forum. The presentation you have been listening to comes from Gil Bailey's Audio Archives, produced in the 1980s and 90s. While Mr. Bailey has continued to deepen his analysis of many of the themes he explored in his earlier work, the Board of Directors of the Cornerstone Forum and I are confident that you will find, as we have, that these presentations from the past are both informative and inspiring. In the years since the presentation was recorded, Mr. Bailey has been writing and giving workshops, retreats, and parish missions around the country and abroad to help develop a deeper appreciation for the historical uniqueness of Christianity and the contemporary challenges to the Christian vocation. For more information about the Cornerstone Forum, visit our website at www.cornerstone-forum.org. There you will find links to our weblog and Facebook pages. Contributions in support of our efforts are gratefully received and can be made online on our secure website or by calling the forum's office at area code 707-996-4704. Or finally by postal mail sent to P.O. Box 269, Sonoma, California 95476. Thank you for your interest in our work.